As our society continues to unveil fractures within its social and political systems, the show, Align Traced, aims to examine topics that are immediate, pressing, and impact the built environment in ways that require urgent architectural responses. A podcast by RAA at the Architectural Association. Hello, this is Fayal Massoud uh, here with Otolo and Maria Putri. Today's episode is the last of a four-part series on the extension of the colonial into the post-colonial in three nominally decolonized states. So we have looked at Egypt and Burkina Faso and finally Indonesia. And through this series, we try to unpack how we have yet to achieve the post in post-colonial. To do so, we've been looking at the way in which colonialism produces new forms of control and modes of capital extraction. And although we first thought of debt in the very narrow economic sense, through our conversations, we have come to understand it more broadly as a sort of unbalanced relationship. After having discussed these methods of control for this last episode, we want to turn to explore modes of resistance focusing on the tools and the precedents which each of us and our guests value and rely on to imagine better futures. So I would just like to present uh, our speaker today, or our guest, uh, Janice Chedi, or as you were saying, you have another pronunciation. Yeah, so my mother pronounced it Janice Chedi, yeah. Okay. Um, and so you are a writer, a researcher on visual culture, uh, cultural democracy and difference. Um, and you were also keeper for uh, 13 years of the Panchayat archive. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Yeah, yeah, Panchayat, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, which is an archive that was then transferred to the Tate Britain uh, and which we'll discuss Uh, in much more detail later. Um, you also worked uh, on public policy as the consultant for cultural strategy at the mayor's office in London, um, uh, developing, managing the Heritage Diversity Task Force, uh, specifically for African and Asian heritage is my understanding. Um, and today you work uh, with Afford uh, on the return of the ICONS program. So trying to organize the repatriation Um, of African arts to their respective places of origin. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'd just like to say that that initiative is funded by the Open Society Foundation. So yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Is there anything you would like to add? Um, no, no, that was very good. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Any other descriptors you would have for yourself? Okay. Um, for this last episode, um, we're going to have a different format. So we'll be discussing um, objects, film clips, artworks, posters, photographs, photographs, excerpts of literature, um, which might offer a window into a particular mode of resistance to the neocolonialism to which we are subject. Okay. So the idea is, therefore, we have these specific objects that we've chosen together um, and we'd like to kind of go through them and see how they offer windows into forms of emancipation in particular contexts or as a group of, uh, as a sort of collective resistance. Due to copyright reasons, we are not allowed to play this extract, but just to introduce the scene, Sukarno is making the opening speech for the Asia-Africa Conference in Bandung in 1955, addressing delegates. He says... This is the first intercontinental conference of colored peoples, so-called colored peoples in the history of mankind. And you can find a link to the video in the show notes. Um, so that was a short excerpt from the opening address given by Sukarno, Indonesia's first president at the Asia-Africa conference in Bandung, Indonesia in 1955. Um, the conference was formally brought together 
um, what was already a significant uh, solidarist political movement between culturally diverse peoples united by their struggle against colonialism and imperialism. It, it was a forum for articulating um, the political prospects and aspirations uh, for a new order shaped by political values drawn from these struggles. But it is also a project that is constantly being reinvented and reinterpreted. Also, like something, while I was listening to the speech, something very interesting is like when it's like so-called people of color, there's this poem from Leopold Sedar Songa, which was the president of Senegal at one point, and like he was part of the negritude. And he has this poem where he's like, who is the real colored person? And he said about, like he talked about how like him being black is black most of the time, and the true colored people are white people, which is like super interesting in the way it shifts the perspective. And I feel like in a small way, that's what he's doing like when he's starting mm -hmm. that. Yeah, the entire conference it seems is predicated on this idea of how do you push back against uh, a certain standard um, but also my something that always sits uncomfortable with, uncomfortably with me about Bandung is just this sort of very statist approach to resistance sort of replicating specific models of uh, of, uh, of nationhood um, even just the setup as this sort of parliamentary assembly I mean is I don't know if this is a valid critique or if it's just sort of falling into quite a um, I don't know, maybe they're, they're being much more realistic than... I mean, I, I think it, it emerges at a moment because it's like um, less than 10 years after the first sort of wave of post-colonial independence because 1947 is obviously India, so this is less than 10 years. And where that whole process of anti-colonial struggle really begins with a momentum. So I think it's quite interesting on that level, that it is on one level trying to have this sort of sovereignty around the nation state. And in some senses, and this is one of the things which begins to undercut it, is that those nation states are artificial anyway, that they were created largely through colonialism. And the kind of the diversity within each of the nations, not only linguistically, but in terms of ethnic um, culture, was sort of under this kind of umbrella of what that might look like. And I was just thinking, also for your generation, it's so far away in terms of like it's more than 60 years since Bangdong, and for is which is almost a century. And I was just wondering, it's still not known about and it's not really been kind of researched, but in, in other ways it has a mythology what's come, come about it, about how we've come to organise around that. But I also think... At this particular moment of crime, when the major thing is climate change, that and the people who are on the front line of climate change are actually the people or the states that were literally gathered around that table, is the question of how we begin to one hold on to that kind of utopian optimism about coming together, but at the same time look at different modes of thinking and organizing around that. So that's what really struck me about Bongdung, because it's actually almost really important as a marker of what could be possible within that midpoint within the 20th century. But as we approach almost 100 years since um, Bangdong, how do we, when we're really threatened 
by the forces of, of colonialism and legacy, of, particularly around the land, around colonialism, how do we then begin to build those alliances? Because, you know, talking from somebody who's coming from the Caribbean, there's been, that is one of the front lines of climate change, you know, the kind of, the the droughts, the kind of hurricane seasons, the storms, which are similar to what's happening in Bangladesh, is that there seems to be another way of re- also rethinking indigenous knowledge around the land as well, which I think a lot of the Bangdong doesn't sort of begin to engage with the kind of level of culture either. So I think, it, I, mean, I, th- I mean, I'm always inspired by it, but it's also quite interesting, yeah. Yeah. Is there a way also in which actually by having such um, a wide range of cultures and ideologies at the same table that it's difficult to find a sort of common ground um, for them to discuss? I mean, I, you're always talking about like finding these sorts of alternative cosmologies or whatever within the Burkinabe traditions. Um, but how do they speak to, for instance, uh, someone in Indonesia who might have a completely different sort of set of traditions, relationship to the land? Um, yes, I don't know. Is there a way in which you can bring them together, which they might have just avoided trying to do because they're so different? I mean, Bangdong's always, it is almost, it's the non-aligned because it was this setup. It's very much embedded in that Cold War, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, you know, there was the West, which was set up around, you know, the Euro-America axis, and then there was Russia and then China. Um, and I think those histories also, because there were circulations of scholars, so you think there's a lots of people who were going to travel from the third world, you know, Cuba, in, in terms of people going and studying, and there are communities who are kind of like legacies of, of, of people who settled and never went back. So I think the kind of, there was almost a kind of ready-made opposition to that. And I think the ways in which nation states are constructed, the ways in which global capitalism have constructed, and also the mobilities around the diaspora also have kind of really different impacts around the ways in which, I don't know if it would be even possible to kind of conceive uh, the ways in which a kind of bangdong would be around now And also the kind of ethno-nationalisms, particularly if you look at India, in some ways what's happening is is kind of almost inconceivable, would have been inconceivable in 1955 in terms of the way it imagined itself as a a nation-state. So I think think the thing is is to kind of not not kind of over-romanticise it, but look at it as a kind of utopian moment of a possibility which points to ways in which we can start to rethink what those alliances might look like. And they might be fractured, but they might be those kind of moments in which we can have a conversation and dialogue about things. I mean, talking about, because I feel like the way we looked at it, like, because this this what kind of started the whole idea of the podcast. And I think we looked at it actually in that way of how, like, there was this moment in history and he taught us, like, those things can happen and how can we build off that? Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, in Africa, I think in like in, Alge- in Algeria, Algeria, in 1969, there was this Pan-African festival. And I would say that it's, um, 
it feels like it's a continuation from what happened in the 15 in Bandung, where you had Black Panther that came to Alger, um, newly, newly independent African countries as well that came together to talk. And actually, um, what Ferial was saying about Bandung being very formal and looking at nation states, you could see, I think, in that event that it, it was a bit different and was more informal. And even in the in the film that we're going to, the expert we're going to, going to show, they're eating together at a dinner table. And it's just like, it's very exciting to see all of the iteration of those moment, movement and like, what can we do now as should well? We, should we play the episode? Yes. We can't play this clip for copyright purposes, but... Just to set the scene, we're in this grand courtyard in a house in Algiers and a long table crosses the entire courtyard with about 20 individuals having lunch sat around it. And the camera pans from person to person and each of the guests presents themselves. So you have Henry Douglas, Afro-America, David Huey, Afro-America, Raymond Lewis, Afro-America. And it goes on with the name of the guests, then their chosen nationalities, such as Haiti, Angola, Mozambique, Zimbabwe, South Africa. Interestingly, you also have Babylon and of course, Afro-America. And you can find a link to the original video in the show notes. Okay, so I'll just situate it very quickly. Uh, it's an excerpt from a movie, a sort of documentary about uh, Eldridge Crewater, who was a um, Black Panther who was exiled from the U.S. and who moved to Algeria temporarily. And uh, uh, he was there at a time when this uh, Pan-African festival was being held, so in 1969. And so this excerpt specifically is that big lunch that they're having in this beautiful courtyard in a house in Algiers. Um, and they're each presenting themselves. And so, yes, it's a very different roster than Bandung because you have these newly independent African states mm -hmm. along with the Afro-Americans. So there's this emerging identity in America as well, which relates back to the African continent. Um, and I quite like this moment where you just have this this coming together of these people. And as you were saying, the celebration of the ritual of sharing food um, in a very informal setting. Um, I mean, I, th I think the other thing that's really interesting is actually the different circulations around culture that's happening in that moment. So if you look at what's happening in Latin America, which becomes really influential around the idea of a third cinema, And, and the ways which is sort of like this kind of self-made cinema, which is about really kind of connecting with an idea of what is specifically to Latin America at the time. But it begins this whole like deconstruction of Hollywood cinema, then what they called independent cinema. So this would be the third cinema where you would have a non-Eurocentric gaze around the people struggle within that. And that becomes really influential It, within the wider sense. So you look at somebody like Trin Minha, a lot of that becomes in, important in terms of her later work that she starts to make in the 80s. So I, I think there's lots of circulations which are going around how you reimagine what the world might be within, within the cultural form and you kind of start to think about tools of image making and but also around... in And so I think things which begin to happen in Africa, so like the Wagadougou Festival, which, which begins to happen, which begins to bring people among continents, and this whole kind of idea of bringing third world cinema together to have those kind of things, those really start with an earnest in the 60s, obviously with the Cultural Revolution in Cuba, 
which presume, which takes up film and culture as one of the expressions of the revolution, that becomes really important. But I think that there are lots of cultural, those cult, new languages which now seem so everyday, if you look at, like, you know, cinema from the Cuba, because it's now been incorporated into what we think of kind of independent cinema in the ways and that. But actually that there was this kind of, how can you we use the tools to actually articulate a new imaginary which actually has a democratic impulse into it? And I think that those things were really, really, and continued, I think, even though they're much more dis- dis- dispersed, they're actually really important. And I also think if you look at the 1989 um, Havana Film F- um, Art Festival, Biennale, so it's like becomes this Biennale because there wasn't any Biennales outside, really, you know, Venice. There was this, the the Biennale in San Paolo, but you know, but beyond that, there was no Biennales, particularly which looked at non-European art. And this idea that you could have a global South come into Cuba, to, which was specifically about to come in together about what the different cultural expressions might be, which then sort of doesn't look to Europe to talk about Biennale, you know, and it's cited as being this kind of globalisation of the art world. But it's, it's the, I think the, the legacies of, of Bandong is about the imaginary of what is possible within, and I think each generation has to reimagine that. So what was possible or needed in 1955 isn't the same as what is going to be imagined or possible in, in 22. And the other things is, if you look at those, it's largely men within that, you know, representing the the nation state within a very kind of um, largely imported idea of what democracy is from the British, which is still kind of very top down. It doesn't have um, this idea of a kind of local democracy, which that's where Panchayat comes from. It's this idea of a local group of elders meeting together to discuss um, particular issues and things, and I think that those those kind of formations actually exist outside, in many cultures, outside in the West of how we think we can, we we can do that. So I think imagining what a new form of democracy is 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 kind of is one of the legacies that we have to take away from. Bangdong as well, I think. Can I just ask, because, so it's quite interesting in terms of the, uh, what you were t- saying about cinema from Latin America and South America as this sort of third alternative and similarly Bandung being the non-aligned movements, but it's also these countries which are the, the third world. I mean, there's always this idea of the these two poles and then this, uh, this third entity op- uh, operating as a sort of synthesis. Yeah. Is that... To what, is, to what extent is that true? Is it? Uh, it sounds very Hegelian to me, basically, this sort of uh, uh, thesis, antithesis, and then the synthesis that you find in the third way. Or is does is the third alternative kind of always stuck between these two poles? I mean, I think they're, they're of their time. So they, they arise in the middle of the kind of, you know, the 20th century where you have countries that were largely... Colonial. I mean, not Latin America has a different history of how colonialism operates within that. But if, particularly if you're talking about the large empires, France, Germany, Britain, 
um, and in some states, the United States, that it's that moment post-1945 of when you begin to get a shift in around both in terms of Asia and in terms of Africa, in terms of rethinking about what that might might look like, think, thinking that rethinking that relationship between the colonial master. And I think that, that those are issues. So therefore, that was, in, in some senses, that was actually being saying that you weren't subject to France or subject to Britain. I think it, it, it has in it um, an opposition already, which puts up this binary. So I think in that sense, is they are products of their time. So third cinema, because it, it's been told, well, you know, you don't have the production values of of Hollywood, or you don't have the production values of independent cinema because you're making a film on 200 US dollars as opposed to people who are using 50,000. It's about saying, well, actually, we can develop a new language which actually recognises that we don't have that and then what we do is valid in, in that way. So I think it's it's almost an evolution. That isn't now possible. And also because if you look at somewhere like London or Paris or or um, other places around Europe, you know, the diaspora or the, you know, the colony basically lives there and has done for three or four generations. So that relationship between who's other is kind of com- continually being reworked, I think. So I think it's of, of a moment of its time, but it, it does, it, it, it holds out this kind of idea that you can create a space which where you're not welcome, I think, and, and how you do that in a way which is actually affirming rather than something which is always about not being good enough, if, if, if that makes sense, yeah. Yeah. There's something really actually quite beautiful about that, the sort of constraints that create possibilities or create a more uh, um, creativity in a way, yeah. actually. Yeah. Um, actually, on that, maybe we should listen to uh, Audrey Lloyd's excerpt. We also cannot play this clip due to copyright reasons. This video extract is called A Litany for Survival, The Life and Work of Audrey Lord. Audrey Lord was a black feminist writer and poet. While wearing a colorful t-shirt, she described her creative process and insists on embracing the uncertainty that results from it. The only thing that one might be able to predict is that the work will get a life of its own. Similarly to poetry, children, and she even referred to herself. And you can find the link to the video in the show notes. Um, I think this is part of a documentary um, that talks, I think it's a litany for survival. Um, and it talks about, it just like shows Audrey Lord life when she was in Berlin and like the Afro diaspora. And there's like, it's a very like heartwarming movie. Like when I, I mean film, when I watched it, it was really nice because there's like snippets of her life and then she recited her poems. But I think there's something very refreshing about her saying that things don't, they do not need to be finished because it's in direct opposition to the system in which we function. In general, like even if we talk about the academia as this thing of like, I don't know, like I tend to mix all of those things together, but like capitalism reason is this thing, like they project themselves in the future because they understand everything and it's just like getting away from this certainty. Um, And in a way, like when you're talking about, like honestly, it's just like me speaking, but like when you're talking about like reinventing 
I don't know, like democracy or like all of those different areas, like how do we implement our ethos into that? That would be quite interesting to know. I mean, when I, when I saw that, it kind of reminds me. So um, Dan Hicks, who's the author of um, British Museums, he talks about, he takes the phrase from... Um, the green, um, sorry, the climate change movement, which is um, that we need to be that we need to be responsible ancestors, and he talks about in terms of restitution that we need to be responsible descendants. So we don't have to take on what was left to us and repeat the silences and things like that. But I also, so I think that that, and I I also think particularly in relationship to law. Audrey Lord's work is there's this idea if we go back to the Bangdong movement and, and the people before them who never lived to see colonialism, the, the, um, the end of it, there's always a moment in, in social change where people know of are very aware that they are not going to see the outcome of their actions of today. You know, so you can see that across centuries, but they still involve, they still go out, they still take those those steps. And I think there's that kind of sense of change being a, a kind of constant momentum and that we don't necessarily see the results and it's unfinished. You know, the, the, the idea that just, Derrida talks about that justice is incomplete and it needs to be a constant process and updating. So it's that sense of, that even we make our contribution and it's it's never going to be complete and it's not perfect but it's for the generation behind us or that comes before us after us rather who actually begins to take it up but, but we also dictate we don't dictate what that is so I remember having a conversation with somebody who's talking to me about the panchaic because they were trying to record the history and I was saying well they're actually, for me personally, the idea is to have the, the archive accessible. So it gets catalogued, hopefully at some points it gets digitised, because the ways in which you, you write the history of the politically black arts movement in the 1980s cannot be me saying, well, this is the history of the archive, because it's for the people who come after us to do their own research and to produce different narratives of that. And I think in that sense, that's that's how I, that's when I saw that, I was thinking, yes, I kind of completely, because it's been re, reiterated in so many ways around how we think about climate change, about, you know, how, our responsibility now to people who have gone behind, who are coming in front of us, but also we don't have to repeat the mistakes of the people who kind of destroyed the land either. So I think it's that kind of where awareness of our own fine you know kind of flaws and kind of that we're finite but at the same time we can leave traces of breadcrumbs of of what may be possible mm. uh, there's actually quite an interesting um piece of architecture i suppose that you introduced us to um which relate to this idea of how do you create an archive which is not fixed in time but yeah. subject to constant rewriting um Would you like to explain it? You'll do it much better than I can. <laughs> uh, but also, like, just to say, there's something nice about it because you take off the pressure and understanding, like, having this solidarity through, like, time and space and understanding we don't function alone. Yeah. It's really nice because, like, yeah. Uh, but, like, 
also like this piece of architecture is like in a way is to look at how can we go beyond the archive and we don't even need to like talk about the archive as like an object, but it's part of our everyday life. So like um, you have um, Guhunsi architecture. The Guhunsi, they're located in Burkina Faso and Ghana. And so they do this earth architecture in which uh, they paint and the shape in itself um, is related to who is living in the house because often the children like uh, live with the grandparents and then the parents live together. And on the wall, you have like symbols that represent the cosmology and it changes every year. Like it's painted again. It's, it's part of like, it's a ritual that all of the, the village uh, take part in. And so I just always found it interesting as this example of like an archive that's integrated to the culture because the environment in which you are in makes sense of itself and you don't need to go far to understand it or like go to the British medium to understand that. Um, and so I would like to know like how do you see if it, um, the archives of the future in a way? I mean, I, I, I think there's, it's really difficult to, because I think if you look at the Panjait archive, it, it starts at that moment so it's sort of, there's a moment of when even for, for, for your generation, there wasn't, photocopies weren't even that accessible at the beginning of the 80s. So the idea that you could print a post, you know, a, a poster which is about a demonstration or, or print your own magazine was actually kind of, that really begins in the 80s. And then you get word processing and then you begin to get kind of more, it moving into the digital so the archive exists on that sort of transition moment it sort of begins at the start of what we'd call the digital or the moving away from the analog and then it moves almost to kind of fully digital so it's largely it is largely an analog art archive but what I mean for me the real problem is is that things are, are lost anyway because you know, there's too many um, examples where, because lo a lot of the of the of the artists have come from working class family backgrounds, there's no history of art making within them, and they're often from diasporic communities. They don't understand the value of the of, of a child who went off to, to 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 art college who wasn't never rich, but exhibited, but was part of a. So things get thrown; they get chucked in the bin, but. But here is that so much is on our phones and things are being lost because a lot of, you know, family photographs and things like that. I can think of the number of times I've changed emails accounts and largely I've not archived the stuff. So lots of things which when I moved from one email account, which was like correspondence, is completely lost. So I think there is going to be a dearth of information which I think there is anyway, but also there's going to be a lot of stuff which just doesn't seem important to people, but actually is. And so I, it, it, on one level, I think you you can have a hope of democratising the archive, but unless there is a, a principle embedded in the archive that it is, that it has this cultural democracy in it, because the other the other things that we're moving for is that archives have been behind paywalls, 
So you can see a lot of large companies snapping up archives around the world and that you can't have access access to that. And so I think unless you have embedded within the process of collecting both within the profession of archiving and within the kind of management of the archives, this principle, particularly if you're dealing with people who've been marginalised, this principle of access, which has a human rights and cultural democracy ethos around it, you will increasingly get privatisation of stuff. And that and that is important in terms of like, for example, if you can imagine that you don't have access to your great-grandmother's, the only photograph that she exists, and it, it because it was your, let's say, your your father, or it was taken by a kind of colonial photo, photographer, you don't have the right to that photograph. Those things have really emotional and visceral effects. So it's not just about the grand archives of the great and the good, but it's also about those kind of really emotional connections that people have with things of, you know, for, for so example, the London I grew up in doesn't exist anymore. You know, it's largely existing photographs. Uh, and so, but I live in a, a London which is now, of today. So it's it's things like that about how you situate and, and, and talk about your memory and how the fabric of the city has changed radically in a way which is more unequal. And that does actually have an effect on me. And it has effect of people who now live here. So it's all things like that. But if they're all that cultural memories locked behind me having to pay somebody to access that and I can't use it in a book, it's actually has some real effect. So that my fear, my fear is the greater privatization of archives. And you do see that a lot in, in public galleries, unfortunately, this desire to to own everything because that sometimes it can be monetarized in in the future so, so i can't so on one level it's great that people are taking pictures of everything but it's there has to be some kind of depository around those, those kind of ways in that and that they should be more based around self-organizing communities rather than in large structures but it's it's a minefield and I think it also is coming up around areas of restitution it's like we give you your stuff back but we keep the digital rights to the image and we you know we have the right to recreate it you know it's it's stuff like that which becomes really kind of problematic as well definitely I mean that's exactly what it brought up to mind the the conversation about art restitution um But also because then it goes in the opposite direction. So when you when you give back these uh, um, artworks, who are you giving them to? Um, are the people who? I think that's the main. Uh, there is has been a big debate about this in France recently because Macron, the president, has been quite interested in this uh, subject for purely political reasons but uh, and so he asked Feline, Feline Sarr, um, the historian to pre prepare this report 
on uh, the the artworks which could be repatriated. But the idea is always who are you sending them back to if uh, since then the tribes or the communities have converted and those objects no longer have the same spiritual value or do you give them to the state and is it even for the French state to make that decision? I mean, I, th I think the other interesting thing is a lot of a lot of the things which come with the diaspora communities are actually intangible so they're not objects there are rituals so they're around food they're around how you bury your dead how you celebrate the birth of a child and they are being changed as communities move to urban locations and I think That's another thing which is archival, but in, in a sense it's not. In, it, it's not an object, but it's a practice. And I think we, the notion of the kind of what, what you protect within that and also there's kind of like different circulations of things. So I was actually, I, I mean, I, I didn't know this, so I'm, I'm completely confess up to my ignorance, but I didn't realise that Chile really kind of started was is indigenous to South America because it 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 kind of in a very short space of time it it's used just everywhere in Asian cooking right? cooking isn't it it's just like there's not one place in Asia that you can't find chili as part of the kind of thing so the idea that something can move so quickly and then become nativized within that also I think within a kind of very globalized world we also need to to recognize that those shifts as well can happen in a really short space of time so it's something which and I'm sure the, th the four of us actually all are used to chili in our in as a kind of use in cooking but it's it's quite interesting actually it, it comes from this other circulations of migration that we think about so obviously when you picked up the breadfruit which is a kind of fruit which comes from Southeast Asia but actually is brought to the Caribbean to basically feed the enslaved it's it's about how these kind of geographies really transform landscapes as well and then the architecture that responds to that also becomes part of that kind of conversation but it's I it's those circulations which I think are actually really important and I think Bangdong also speaks to that circulation about how we think about those circulations of solidarity as well because you know we had particularly if you look at Vietnam there were lots of solidarities across Asia in terms of anti-Vietnam but also in Africa there were solidarities to Cuba there were solidarities to Angola you know all those kind of things also bring a kind of circulation with them with them But if you look at something like the Silk Road, within that is also, is also, you know, power relationships as well. So, oh, not the Silk Road, the new Belt and Road Belt initiative, and sorry. The, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the Belt and Road, um, I think China has a certain, asserted themselves as a neo-colonial force because what they do uh, with this massive infrastructural program is that um, the South-to-South -South discourse is missing and with their economic expansion in Southeast Asia um, and Africa, there is not a reciprocal uh, 
or equal relationship. It's very much unequal in the way um, these neo-colonial extractions yeah. take yeah. a place um, in both continents. But I mean, I, I actually think it'd be interesting to actually begin to see. So if you look at somewhere like Guyana, so Guyana has a historically Chinese community as well, like most probably like places like Suriname. But it's actually kind of interesting enough that between the new Chinese and the kind of more historical Chinese, it's interesting that those... I think they're expecting these kind of kin relationships that exist between these kind of creolized communities, for want of a better word. And so there are different kind of tensions in then that. And I was, there's a ways in which, in some senses, that China will also be changed because you're finding lots of people in, the, in those populations who have spent time either in Africa or in parts of um, other parts of Asia, and they will bring back either they would have changed their intangible cultural heritage or they will bring back new things that they... I'm just wondering, that exchange, I think, isn't as neat as they think it's going to be. And I think what you will see is that different cultures are, are, arrive around that. Because I know, for example, in Japan, there's historically a, a kind of like Japanese community in Brazil. And there was a point when they went back in the 80s, but the they were too creolized for the for the Japanese, even though in in Brazil they're seen as Jap Japanese and their culture is quite distinct from Japan. But when they went home, and this is after a number of generations, they 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 were too Latin America. It's so I think those kind of cultural exchanges will produce new different kind of cultural. Um, dynamics, I think, in 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 relationship to, the, to to what's happening in China, because I think there's a tendency, to, particularly when people go abroad, is that you know I stay myself, but actually, you actually have to change to live in that. You know, if you ever lived abroad, you have to change. You can't do what you did at home, and you have to change. You know, you can't find the food that you ate at home, and so you have. You know, so it's. I think. It's what's interesting to me is is that I think there is a kind of circulation relationship, and they're not necessarily always equal, but there is a a, a dynamic which people don't expect when those things happen as well. But also, like again, like as a way to like shift perspective, um, the the diaspora, for example, like they they're always influenced by because they go in a place where they cannot necessarily practice their rituals, but the people in themselves that are there are also influenced by that as well and I think it's quite important to acknowledge it and how like there's a reciprocity in those yeah, things yeah. but I think most of the migrations a lot of the migrations we now are seeing are, 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 are rural aren't they to urban particularly in the non kind of in the south in the global south they're, they're largely those movements in, into kind of cities and things like that and I think the loss is actually faster now, isn't it? Of loss of kind of heritage traditions is a lot faster now. And I think that that's, that's the kind of thing. And I, to me, that would be the archival work. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like of contemporary, of, of finding how those kind of rituals and interactions with urban landscapes change that those kind, kind of things. Because even though it's easier to maintain, if you've got money, the connections between home and not home 
but even then you're you're changed with within within that sense and I saw that with my mother you know she always saw herself as intrinsically Caribbean but when she went home home after 20 years she kind of came to that realization that actually she just lived here too long and what the home she lived at was in her head because it wasn't the contemporary the contemporary reality that she experienced you know and I I think that was difficult for her but it was actually I think that's what happens I think because you know I've lived you know when I've lived abroad you still think that you've changed but when you arrive back it's just a culture shock (laughs) even though I grew up here it's just like London's too noisy people are just too difficult (laughs) you know it's all those kind of things and you know and it's kind of and it, you know, it took me like a year and I'd grown up here to kind of readjust myself back into, into those things. And it's, but you also take a part of that place you've left behind and you keep when you're back here as well. So I think circulations are kind of quite difficult. So you would say it was more difficult to readjust to living here than it was to move to I think they're different I mean I think the I knew it was going to be different when I moved but I think when I came back I just thought I would slot back in but actually what I didn't realize is that I wasn't used to being in a large city for example you know and, and the, the 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 kind of brutishness of living in a large city you actually just forget and actually it just takes you a long time to kind of readjust and then there's also the weather and the heights <laughs> but but all those things like um you know particularly I you know I even though I had lived in the Caribbean I'd never grew up in the Caribbean but it's it took me a long time just to adjust to the light here because the light is particularly if you arrive in the winter it's just like chronically depressing and it's those things you just don't realize actually are going to affect you when you're away because you because you're remembering the summer but actually if you arrive back here in October and it's cold and it's dark at four four or five o'clock it's it's quite grim and it's it's just those levels of adjustment I think are quite but um yes I think we've kind of lost the thread, but... Can I just add one point on that? Is that, so I'm very much a child of the diaspora um, and my parents both moved from Egypt to America um, in the late 60s for my father and late 80s for my mother. Um, And so they're now getting to this stage in their life where they're considering a move back um, with retirements. But yes, as much as they have changed and they might not slot themselves back into the life that they had then. What was even more shocking, I think, to them in these recent years was realizing how much the country that they had left behind had changed. And I think that's also another factor to really take into consideration. It's just that everything is shifting, not just us as individuals because of our displacement. But I mean, I'm in, I, I mean, yes, I, but so it should. Do you know what I mean? In, in some ways because you experience you know I because I can look back as I said the London I grew up does no longer exist physically as well as just in terms of time it just physically doesn't exist it's the rapid changes that have gone within the public realm have been very dramatic um and so there's that that kind of thing but also just generally you know the population has grown it's much more diverse than when I was growing up but that brings new new kind of um 
things. And I, I think one of the things that struck me is about, about Bandung, which I was thinking about that, is that a lot of the, particularly around the global, global protests, have been around this kind of axis of enslavement, particularly if you look around the move on the women's, and it's some aspects of colonialism, but in some senses they've been linked to that, this kind of legacy. And what, what I was thinking about, actually, the more the populations move and shift, even for, for a lot of Africans, that relationship between this axis of inequality through the legacies of its life, don't actually have the same emotional resonance for them. So, so therefore, actually, the legacies are the legacies of the wider colonialism, which actually produce that because, you know, particularly in Europe, it, there's so much, it's so diverse in terms of who's coming here and those communities. So even if you were talking about African communities, they, are, they don't have the, that direct link in the ways in which a Caribbean community does. And I think that should produce new conversations about what these axes of solidarity, which are not driven by an African-American um, axis. So I think that that's, that's happening in London. I'm sure it must be happening in Paris and in Belgium, is that those axes of rethinking about what that means. And also, as, you know, generally, everywhere you go, China is there. Do you know what I mean? They, the link perhaps isn't perhaps America anymore. The link perhaps is China. And, and that China is producing those new relationships between how we think about those links across. And maybe it's the link, we're closely linked to each other now through China than we were perhaps during through the West in in, in contemporary in the twenty first society. If you see what I mean, I mean um, something that comes to mind when I'm listening to you is is even something like cultural appropriation. Um, people that like the diaspora tend to react so like wait like African diaspora tend to react way stronger to to that when it happened in Europe than like. If you were, if for example, I, I was to go to Burkina Faso and I saw someone from a different ethnicity wear the clothes or like do braids, they would react very differently. So even this like having different sensitivity to those things, because on um, every day you are confronted and you are like you you are the you the you are the other. So it's like different sensibilities, and also like having a different approach than the African American. One is something very interesting because I was talking to one of my friends, which um, which is British, and so most of the time she read her text in in English, um, and so yes, early on I was exposed to like African uh, African American independence movement, but also I had um, as problematic as it is access to texts uh, from the Negritude, so um, uh, Francophone Caribbean writers, or even like a lot of West African writers. So the way I looked at even my blackness was very different because it's not like, I see it's much more like, it's not a whole, like a monolith, but there's a variety of, even often we don't really see it as countries, but more like ethnicities and like tribes. So it's like, it was very interesting having like this difference in perception uh, regarding like even the idea of like blackness. Uh, from our two different backgrounds. Um, I mean, 
I mean, I I think because the, the reason why I um, produced put the picture of the um, the oil was was this idea of what you take because it's an it's a, an oil which is used in ritual, you know, kind of things like that. So it's like, but it me doesn't mean for most people it doesn't necessarily mean anything because without the practice of how it's used and and what it's meaning and it's and it's kind of embedded within a kind of different way of thinking about that. So, because it, it, but it's also a meeting point of a kind of creolization of where a practice which can't be located because it's practiced largely in the Caribbean, but it's not located within either one or the other, you know, because it basically... Because all of the links between of it are broken, is that it, it's absorbed things from the different communities that kind of lived within within that. So, but it's but it also struck me because there's lots of things. Remember the the first refugee crisis when in Syria, which was about 2015. There was lots of things about well, what do you take? You know, if you've only got your your rucksack, what do you take within that? And then. And I remember lots of people would have on their phones some family recipes as well as the photographs and stuff like that. But it just kind of, it it, it just reminds me of, of if you could distill your your life into these 10 objects, mm-hmm. well, what would, what would that be? What is portable? And then that those objects also change as you move because you they have to change of how you use them has to change. You may have not have the privacy to use them, for example. So maybe it becomes something that is more discreet, that you hide, so because you can't practice the whole ritual. What in it? So what I was thinking, those were the things that, that I was kind of trying to think. But in in that sense, it's also an archival piece, mm-hmm. because it talks both is an object, but actually is an object to something which isn't spoken um, and that. So I, I, I think we need to think about, you know, going back to architecture because obviously what is in the home is often unspoken, isn't it? It's, it's practised, you know, most people don't actually spend their time designing their particular homes. Things are kind of cobbled together and they change because your children get older or, you know, your mother comes to live with you. You know, so it's things like that. What is practised and how is that influenced by what, what you know, what you gain from the outside as well? But um, Yeah, definitely. Even as we were saying, I think, the other day on an urban level, Islamic city or what are mm. referenced as Islamic cities, you have this sort of quite organic... Um, development of the city that's based much more on use as uh, constructing the city and expanding it so because you keep going down this road this path whatever you'll carve a road down that way because it is the most used one so there's this sort of ritualistic aspect that becomes sort of cemented in the very design yeah yeah but so for instance in your case with this oil how how has it changed for you? Or do you still use it? Oh, because it was it's my mother's. It, it kind of has lots of different things. It was kind of thing for me because they actually. I was actually thinking about putting them. Even I've, I brought one to the front, and I actually left it on my kitchen table. But the smell, it, and 
I picked those up in 2016 before my mother, she went into residential care. So, But even now, just one bottle, the smell is just really overpowering. And for me, that was the smell that I knew that I'd arrived home because even though it was hidden in my mother, my mother's shrine was in her bedroom and it was hidden and, you know, you weren't supposed to go in there. It, as soon as you walked to the door, there was, because she had hundreds of these bottles. So it's, it's about, it's also about the use of the space because there was a level of seen and unseen within that space within that so to me it's actually quite interesting that I tend to so now even now because I grew up about them being secret and you couldn't see them I still kind of tuck them away but it's that level as soon as they're brought out they just completely overwhelm you in terms of the sensory thing so it's it just makes me think about because I'm I've been I wasn't taught the rituals it's kind of like imagined ritual in terms of how I would use them so it's about in some senses it goes back to that utopianness because it is about carving out a space you know for her which wasn't her being a mother it was about a space which gave her authority because she was a healer and it's about that creates that for a woman especially a utopian possibility of what you could be something other <laughs> than this person who was a worker or a mother. And so for me, it's it's how do I have some kind of repair around a practice which is lost? And it's, it's me still trying to think about how that repair is possible, because I don't know if it is. But it, it's, and I think in some ways, going back to the Bangdong thing, is that we have to think about how that repair is possible how that liberation of solidarity, which was not based on an imagined arc of, um, you know, either oppression or something, but another thing, something which actually said that we are a world which has a voice, which can speak for itself. How do you repair that possibility, I think? And that's... It's, so that's what it speaks to me because it's it's trying to work through because I don't know if it's possible if if it practice is lost can it it's a bit like a language can it be re restored and what were the steps that you do particularly if you don't have the same the kind of sense of it, the kind of faith sensibility I would be would would put in it so it's I think so I think that kind of goes back to a question of what is what has been lost in Bangdong and how would we, if we want to, what would we be looking to repair in that way? Can can I ask you actually another question? Yeah. Because it's something you receive from your mother and then yeah. I'm just thinking you yourself, how would you uh, like give that to, if you, would you like to give that to your children or how would you do that? Like that immaterial, because it's something very material, but like the immaterial. I mean, uh, the thing is, because so my daughter kind of tries to engage in this practice because it was in, in terms of that she tries to make, so she makes artist work, so she tries to do it. I don't know, for me it's a problem and I don't know because it, because one, it, it's a practice which isn't spoken about and then on another hand, 
it was something she then grew up with, but she also grew up with a silence that you know, she just does that and it's just in the room and we don't talk about it. But at the same time, there's the objects which are left and it becomes what you... There is a, there is a kind of... How do I become a, a, a responsible ancestor or and responsible descendant? That is a real question for me because it's like I do, I'm not I'm still trying to work out for it. So I think archives are really complex in that sense because it is there is a level of responsibility for the person who gets the left for something, and there's also a level of responsibility that you have to the people that come behind you who may want to use it in a completely different way. And I, I, I haven't worked it out, but I think that at the crux of some archives, particularly if you're talking about, which is about community or marginalised communities, there are those, those, the, those, there is a level of responsibility for me. And I think, you know, but also there's a level, or there should be a, a commitment to a kind of democratic access to that. So it has a different life, even one you didn't imagine for itself. And so in some senses, it's it's a bit like the breadfruit, isn't it? Or the chilli. It has something which people wouldn't have imagined was possible within those practices around that as well. And for um, instance, with the Panchiate archive being passed on to the Tate, yeah. do you think that Uh, some of the vocabulary, for instance, of speaking of yourself as a, as a keeper of the archive, is that really transmitted as well? With no, I mean we've, I mean that we've had a long trying to discussion. I think, and I think that the, the the two things in terms of vocabulary is one is which I find really problematic is that there's kind of been a use of movement to kind of black as an ethnic category, and so there are lots of people in that archive who. Who, who, who basically politically black. And so therefore for your generation, I think, oh, they'll go to the archive and they, they'll think certain things aren't in there when they are in there. So I think that's kind of problematic. So the, but solidarities are fractured and that, that is a reality. You know, there are fractured solidarities and there are reasons for that, for a whole range of reasons of, of why those solidarities fractured. But there is there is a historical problem around terminology. And I think that you would, you know, nobody would use the word coloured, whereas he was using that word in an affirmative sense of like, there could be, a, because we were defined as not European, of what that might be. Um, and then the other, the other one, the other one is that it's embedded within a moment which was about radical self collectivization which has particular ideologies which are rooted in the radical left and that is part of the history of, of, of not only the Panjai archive but also if you look at the Brixton Art Gallery archive and it's, it's, it's of that moment and it's difficult to transmit that when it becomes just a series of boxes and you know things that you search on a On a kind of kind kind of thing, so I I I, I there are there are kind of problems within that as well. So I, I don't know how you, it's something which I I don't know how to how to resolve, and maybe the only way that you can do it is through login of a kind of oral testimony around that. Um, actually, I was wondering, like, so then, 
in a way like how like how to say that like so maybe like speculate embracing the speculation on the archive could be a way through it's just like getting away from the exactitude of the object and embrace like it becomes more about the interaction you have with it and like the stories you create around it and the whole like creating a whole new folklore or cosmology oh no i mean i think tradition changes even things that we think as traditional Mm. change with any generation so um just a whole range of things i can you know i can imagine that the way i make a particular dish Mm -hmm. which i grew up with is totally different from my mother and it would be totally different from her grandmother and so even that would be seen as traditional food Mm -hmm. it is it's that is part of the what what um henry lewis gates calls the change in same so this idea Mm -hmm. that tradition is always changing so i sort of accept that and i for me is that you have to have this kind of this kind of lightness of touch around it mm. to allow that space for the imagination because there is no one history around anything. Um, you know, even the way I would narrate my life now would would be different from the way I would have narrated it, and it would be different again from the, the way I wrote it in ten years' time. So there's a kind of, and you have to have that acceptance of the archive within that for me but some people want a chronological neatness to that but I think the problem the reason why it has to be speculative is because of the terminology Mm. the terminology of that moment was about a speculation of what a community that was under attack in the 80s and also even though black artists are everywhere now I came across a document in the archive which actually said black artists are professional that you know this was you know the idea that you you have to say that Mm. tells you something but so the claiming of the space of being an artist for particularly for people came from immigrant communities is actually now seen as you know nonsensical but actually for then that that's why it was done that's why the label was taken because actually you had to claim the space that you could have this space which was around creativity and now obviously it, it's it nobody would say that mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean it would just be she's an artist he's an artist but actually to understand why those archives exist you actually have to understand why that space was needed oh yeah around this the space around but the space about cl- literally claiming the idea that you could have a creative voice mm-hmm. because because for example you only could be considered an artist if you exhibited in cork street which is in the west end of london within particular galleries and it's it sounds strange in the time so so the whole history particularly if you look at the 70s is that unless you exhibited in particular places you weren't considered a creative so, so so for women artists when started to collectivize and they could they could self-identify as an artist and i it sounds really strange but that was the practice within that time unless you exhibited within certain institutions or went to certain institutions you wouldn't have been considered an artist regardless of the quality of your work mm-hmm. and so so part of that history has to come with the archive because it it sort of makes no sense because to see that in a document from the, the 
as it was a local, mm -hmm. the Greater London Authority, makes no sense that they actually have to write in the line, black artists are professional, unless you understand that actually people are saying that you can't be professional, not only because you don't, you're, you're not white and male, but also because you had an exhibit, you'd exhibited in a local gallery in North London and you hadn't exhibited in, in galleries in the West End and you didn't have a dealer. Okay, this kind of, in a way, goes back to like museum context, context yeah. of like objects and how, like, like, like how abstract this seems when like they're not in their own context. It's just like art, the whole discourse around art restitution. Yeah. Anyway. The the entire intangible kind yeah. of being stripped from the object. Yeah. So so it's it's kind of so it, it, in in some ways I you know some of the things that we're talking about is about claiming the idea that Audrey Lord could say I can do something which is unfinished is actually quite a radical statement mm. because if you think about it you know if if. If you're used to having poets who are about producing works which are going to be deposited or read in certain institutions and then they have to be published by certain people, to say that she could do something which had no end is actually quite a radical statement because if if you're, the only way you could be validated mm -hmm. is because you finish a book. She's saying actually that there's something else going on, which is about my practice as a poet. My practice as a poet is not only about writing, but it's also about raising children. It's also about uh, thinking through solidarities with other women, claiming my space as a woman who loves women. Do you know what I mean? All those things have to be claimed. And in some senses, even though you think Bangdong is, is very, it looks very old fashioned. It, all those things are about how do we claim a space, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah? And so in some senses, the breadfruit, which, you know, is not indigenous at all to the Caribbean, is part of, you know, something that I grew up in. It, it It's so prolific that it's on the streets. Nobody eats them half the time because they just, you know, because there's just so many of them and they're quite difficult to cook. But, you know, but they are seen as part of this kind of circulation of culture but it's all everything I think we're talking about is about what are the strategies that we do to claim a space mm -hmm. and in in some senses is do we situate ourselves just in that me or is it that I'm connected to these whole and those connections don't have to be you know blood or anything there could be friendship groups, self-identification groups. It's about that. It's about that, isn't it? It's the space. Yeah. I think this is a good moment to stop. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, God, sorry, we've talked for a long time. <laughs> yes, but thank you very much for that. So thank you, Janice, for joining us and helping us in this particular episode and this series with this notion of how to become good ancestors and really start this process of being truly decolonial what has been done, and what can we do to add to that beyond this important first step of reading and understanding the past as we have been doing. So although we might have come to the end of this series, our work has really only just begun. Thank you for listening. <laughs>